News, politics, and special guests with a Texas twist. That's the goal of the Luke Macias Show. Our nation and state are at a crossroads, and if you're not informed, you're not equipped to make the change that our community needs. Join the conversation and join the cause for liberty today. Welcome to episode 25 of the Luke Macias Show. Uh, guys, today's conversation is with Mark Jones, who's the top political science professor in the state. Um, I think he's more respected than than any other uh, professor here within the higher education institutions. Um, we got a chance to catch up with Mark to get a little bit of his background. If you don't know where he came from and what got him to Texas, then you'll get to hear about that. You'll also get to hear about his take on the current events going on in the Texas legislature and Texas politics at large and the demographic shifts in our state. So it's an interesting conversation. I hope many of you learn things from it. Thank you so much for your continued support of the Luke Messiah show. I did want to quickly talk about um, one issue, which is the uh, controversy that's going on around CPS right now. Um, if you are following the Pardo case, you know that CPS went and uh, forcibly removed a child from a home, uh, which later on we found out the doctor who they got an affidavit from actually did not even recommend them removing the child, did not even uh, insinuate or imply that there was a threat to that child's life or any type of imminent threat. Just to give you context, um, there must be imminent threat. That's when you go to a judge. You basically say, we think this child is getting beaten. We think they're getting mistreated. We think they're getting abused and we must remove them from the home right now. This is the extreme of extreme circumstances. And CPS uh, seems to have acted very brashly and irrationally and to in their efforts. If you have not heard about this case, there's two places I'd recommend uh, you go. There's actually three, but you can go to SenatorBobHall.com. Uh, Bob Hall is a state senator from East Texas, and he has been publishing a lot of information on this. You can go follow him on Facebook at Senator Bob Hall. You can also go to the Texan.News. They have several write-ups. Daniel Friend is a reporter there who has taken this case and run with it, and so he has a number of pieces up there that you can read that kind of give you background. Also, the Texas Scorecard has published a number of op-eds, one from the Texas Homeschool Coalition and several from Senator Bob Hall as well. So go to those locations, uh, read up on this case. This is something that all Texans should educate themselves on. It is also a case that I believe will be in the news for the coming week. So please continue to stay tuned regarding uh, the abusive practices of CPS. Without further ado, I want to get right uh, to a quick word from our sponsor and then to the conversation with Mark Jones. Thank you. Guys, our sponsor for today's show is Patriot Academy, patriotacademy.com. You have heard me talk about this organization, but um, this truly is, for many students, a life-altering event. Um, I cannot tell you how many 16, 17, 18, 20, 25 year olds that have gone to this leadership program and come out with a, an entirely new direction for their life. You can go to patriotacademy.com to find out where they do these events, but essentially they take these students and they go through a week of being a legislator. They actually debate in the in the Texas House of Representatives, in the uh, Delaware House of Representatives, Idaho House of Representatives. It's an incredible experience. I have been involved with them. I believe in what they do. In fact, if you contact them and tell them that you heard about them through the Luke Macias show, I will contribute toward your uh, fee of actually attending. If you know a student that needs to go, that needs direction for their life, they're going to have an opportunity to learn about worldview, about free market economics, about the values that hold society together, and they're going to have an opportunity to be equipped to be a part of making the change that our community, our state, our nation need. So patriotacademy.com, we're grateful for their willingness to sponsor this podcast, and we also want to encourage each and every one of you to check them out. Please do so today. Uh, guys, uh, today I am joined by somebody who I have respected just for his understanding and insight into the legislative process and campaigns and politics and political science in Texas. I think he's the most well-respected uh, political science professor in Texas regarding these issues, and that's Mark Jones with Rice University. Mark, thank you so much for joining me well, today. Well, thanks for those kind words, Luke, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to admit to our listeners, Mark and I just had a great, stimulating, uh, probably six or seven minute conversation uh, in which... I realized I had not pressed the record button. So there was tremendous insight that so many of y'all could have gotten and Luke just never pressed record. So we had to restart this whole conversation. Sorry about that, Mark. 
Well, the second time will be the charm. That's right. We'll we'll even sharpen our uh, our points, you know. So, uh, so Mark, why don't you take a step back and uh, just tell people a little bit about your uh, your kind of journey in political science? Where did you start, and what brought you eventually to Texas? Well, I started off in politics working with my dad, who was very active in democratic politics in St. Louis City and St. Louis County. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did quite a bit of work with Richard Gephardt, Dick Gephardt, who is a leading democratic figure, as well as other other Democrats. So from age 8, 9, 10, I was out handing out uh, leaflets, uh, doing door hangers, all sorts of things in politics, even helping to do surveys back when the way you did surveys was punch cards, these mm. old punch cards that you would essentially punch numbers in and then you run them in a computer and that's how you did your survey analysis. My dad mm. was a pollster and so uh, I was very active then. Uh, ended up going to Tulane as an undergrad more focused on Latin American politics, but I maintained my interest in uh, U.S. politics, working, for instance, on the 1988 Gephardt presidential campaign. And then uh, went to uh, University of Michigan for my PhD, focused on political science uh, in 1989 received my PhD in 1994 and went up to Michigan State where I was on the faculty for 10 years and then Mm -hmm. came down here to Rice in 2004. In Michigan, uh, were you highly engaged within the political process there like you are more in Texas or how did that work? No, not at all. In part because back then I was an assistant professor uh, and then an associate professor. Academe has three ranks, assistant, then you get tenure, you're an associate, then a full professor. Okay. Uh, when you're a junior professor, uh, you tend to have to play the academic game. And playing the mm-hmm. academic game means publishing in the mainstream journals and having a very coherent uh, focus for your research agenda. And so people like to see you working on Latin American politics. In political science, there is very little credit given to people who work on state politics in general, let alone the politics of a specific state. So it's perfectly normal in political science for someone like myself to study Argentina, a single country. Yep. But to study a single state, say like Michigan or Texas, that's seen as sort of second tier or third tier and doesn't get as much credit. You're not going to get the top tier journal publications. So if you want to succeed in political science, you can't really focus on the politics of one single state. You just aren't going to be all that successful. Now, the advantage I have is that in 2004, I made a decision to leave Michigan State and a job offer at Vanderbilt and a job offer at Rice, Hmm. uh, both great institutions. uh, But for me, what really tipped the scales was Houston and Texas versus Hmm. Nashville and Tennessee, which which hands down, Houston's a better city than Nashville and Texas is far and away a better state than Tennessee. So I came here. I will tell you that uh, I think for conservatives right now, Tennessee is uh, a little better state than Texas, just as far as their overall policy goes. But I understand yeah. in 2004, uh, you know, there might have, might have been a different situation. I think if, if I still had to pick a place to live, I still would choose Texas over go. Tennessee. There you go. So I came down here and from the very start, I really wanted to get much more involved in studying uh Houston politics and Mm -hmm. Texas politics. And so one of the first meetings I had here was lunch with Dick Murray over at the University of Houston, who's a great expert on Houston politics and Texas politics, and sort of picked his brain about how he thought the best route to follow in terms of developing that expertise. And so then really I devoted myself to the next four to five years focusing on studying Texas politics, reading, writing, doing analysis, but pretty Mm -hmm. much keeping all of it to myself, Uh, not doing much in the way of public writing. I did one paper, but by and large, I was focused just into, I didn't really want to get, become sort of more a public scholar and a public uh, figure working on Texas politics until I felt I had a really good handle on it. And by about 2010, I felt I was at that place. And that's, you know, one of the great things about Rice is that we get freedom to study the topics we want to study, study them in the way we want to study them with complete intellectual freedom. Hmm. That is, I've never had any pressure from the president, the provost, the dean, the director of the Baker Institute, Secretary Baker, about not studying a certain topic, not uh, studying a certain topic in a certain way, having a certain result. Uh, There's never been any sort of threat of punishment. That's something that I think is pretty rare in higher education in Hmm. the United States, and especially in Texas, where I think you'd be uh, be hard-pressed to find other institutions, perhaps the University of Texas, Austin, maybe not, uh, where you have that freedom, in part because Rice is both a leading uh, private university in terms of we're a member of the Association of American Universities, the elite research universities in the country, but we're also private in the sense that we don't get any money from the state, really. And so therefore, we aren't as beholden to state politicians as, say, you might be at the University of Texas or Texas A&M. Interesting. So um, I know... 
you, you spent so four or five years kind of researching and understanding things and then started, you know, talking more from, from 2010, since you became a little bit more of a public commentator on this to now 2019, almost a decade. What do you see as the changes that have happened, right? Because you kind of mm. walked in right in the midst of what would be considered kind of the Tea Party movement, yeah. and that was when Rick Perry got pretty involved in that yeah. and decided he was a, a big believer in, in all of those issues. And uh, that rise and then where we are today, well, what are some of your big takeaways from the last nine years? Well, I think you know, in 2010, we saw the rise of the Tea Party and the success of the Tea Party, both in the Republican primary elections mm-hmm. and then the wave, at least in 2010, that swept across the state where we saw in East Texas pretty much all of the old line Democrats get beaten. Yep. Uh, and, you know, we only saw, you know, like, for instance, only the only one who really survived was Alan Ritter because no Republican had bo- bothered to file to run against them. Mm-hmm. And then a few days later, he decided, I'm switching to the Republican yep. Party. <laughs> so we saw the Republican wave sweep over uh, Texas. And I think if I had to look back on the era, I think one thing that we probably did not do enough of was looking at both the the way the Tea Party wave, but also President Obama's presence in the White House mm-hmm. and how intricately linked they were. So I think you know once we, once we hit 2018 in particular, we can see that when we looked at the Republican high water mark of say 2010 or 2014, when you know 2014, uh, Greg Abbott, you know. Uh, essentially gave delivered a shellacking yep. to Wendy Davis, yep. beat her by more than 20 points in spite of her spending about $50 million. I think that that was a sort of un, illusory high in the sense that it was based at least in part on President Obama being in the White House. I think Democrats now are probably experiencing an illusory high too due to President Trump's presence in the White House. That is, President Trump's presence in the White House helped fuel the Democratic wave here in Texas in 2018. And I think in, a, in several ways. One, it at least a little bit depressed Republican turnout and demoralized some Republicans from turning out to vote. Not a great deal. That's probably the yep. least important factor. But there were some moderate Republicans who probably voted for Beto as opposed to uh, Ted Cruz because uh, of Donald Trump. Yep. But I think the biggest effect of Trump was, one, providing a vehicle that Democrats could use to mobilize Democratic base voters, particularly mm-hmm. younger voters, but mm-hmm. also uh, some Latinos and others, to get them to turn out to vote. And it also, I think, and this is, I think, even perhaps more critical, it allowed them and to recruit really high quality candidates in 2018 for congressional races mm-hmm. and state house races. If you looked in 2016 or 2014 or 2012, yeah. Democrats were lucky to get whoever would file. Yep. It could be some dudes, some dudette. They could be crazy. They could be not crazy. Democrats had to take what they could get. Uh, this past cycle in 2018, just here where we are right now in Congressional District 7, uh, to, run, to, to run against John Culberson, we had four really top-tier, high-quality Democrats. Democrats would have killed for any of those four candidates in any Republican-held district other than CD23 in 2016. Mm-hmm. And here we had four running. And the same was true up in CD32, a bunch of really high-quality candidates competing to run against Pete Sessions. So Donald Trump's presence, I think, both motivated them to run and gave them a belief that they actually could be victorious. And so I think as long as Donald Trump's in the White House, you still have that sort of, uh, essentially now you have Republicans flying into a headwind, whereas previously they'd had an Obama tailwind. Yep. Now that all said, uh, if Donald Trump loses in 2020 and we get Mm -hmm. President Biden or President Warren or President Harris, I would expect things to shift a little back. And so- Mm -hmm we wouldn't expect to see Democrats doing nearly as well. And so if you're a Republican, what you're probably trying to do here in Texas is weather the storm in 2020 in terms of maintaining control of the Texas House. Texas Senate is Mm going to be red. There's no way that changes. And obviously the statewide officials can't change as well. But the House conceivably could turn blue if the Republicans have a really bad election. Mm -hmm. And so I suspect what we're going to see is quite a bit of Republican energy focused on protecting the eight to 10 most vulnerable Republicans, and then also going on the offensive at the approximately 12 to 15 most vulnerable Democrats. That is the 12 who who, uh, who flipped seats that were held by Republicans, all of whom in the past session had very liberal voting records, some extremely liberal. 
And then a few other seats where the Democrat isn't, say, lock solid. Victoria Nieve would be an example of that, that she's difficult to defeat, but I wouldn't say that it's impossible. Or Marianne Perez here in Houston, that if you ran a really good candidate, you might be able to win. Now, those, you know, it's odds are they're not going to win, but obviously, yes. as you know, as a consultant, uh, you want to run, if you're Republicans, really top candidates across a large number of districts yep. to force the Democrats to spread uh, their money if really only your goal is at best maybe flip two or three or four of them, but then protect all of yours. And as long as you keep that majority, you're safe uh, for redistricting. So one of the things you noted I th- in your write-up this last session, well, before we get there, uh, let's first do this. Why don't you explain your rankings? Because every time you come out with these rankings, right, especially they're, they're always a couple of chiefs of staff and state legislators that get uh, quite upset about where they are in yeah. the different ranking system. And um, I always find it funny because they're, they're and this is just politicians, right? This is just politicians in general. So this is not directed at one person or another. But, um, you know, if any conservative uh, group has a ranking system, you know, the mm. criticism to them always is, oh, well, they just pick and choose the mm. things based on how happy they mm. are or not happy they are with one person over another. And they try mm. to target people, which I do not, having worked with a lot of these different conservative groups, I don't believe that's the case, especially with the fiscal responsibility index or young conservatives of Texas, right? These people have opinions and, and they make their opinions known. But the point is that you can always levy that criticism of, oh, well, they get to choose their rating mm. system, right? And right. so you uh, have a system of taking these votes in. Why don't you explain that? And and interestingly enough, uh, there's usually very little discrepancy. You know, when it comes to three or four mm. different people, all rank people from the most conservative to the most liberal, whether you're using an ideological filter or a uh, system like you do, there's a lot of consistency, right? You can see that, mm. oh, the bottom 20 or the bottom 20, the top 20 or the top 20, the most liberal Democrats are the most liberal Democrats. There's very few right. outliers. There might be some slight changes within the top 10 or the top 20. So all that being said, why don't you explain that system? And then I've got a couple questions uh, along those lines. Sure. The system is it's called ideal point analysis. Okay. It's a broad family of work that's been done in political science for close to 40, 50 years. Uh, a man named Keith Poole, uh, who's recently or is presently at the University of Georgia and Howard Rosenthal is up at Princeton still. They developed it initially, uh, but, it, but they weren't invent, they were not reinventing the wheel, but they were drawing on previous work. Uh, to put it in simple terms, what it does is it takes every vote that everyone votes on uh, that's above a certain threshold that is non-lopsided, and that's designed to exclude votes where only one person is on the losing side. Um, it takes every vote and essentially runs a computer simulation that in the end will locate them on as many dimensions as there are uh, in the legislature. Now, in the current legislature in Texas, we only have one dimension. One dimension explains almost all variance in voting. It is possible to have multiple dimensions. Uh, Historically in the United States, back in like say the 50s, and uh, there was a really strong liberal conservative dimension, but there was also a small north-south dimension that divided Southern Democrats from Northern Democrats on Mm. civil rights issues. But here in Texas, it's a, you have one issue explains every vote. The the, the amount that's added by adding a second dimension is less than 1% of explanatory, which is pretty much noise. So, I don't so, really understand what you just said, but I, yeah. I, I let's just keep going with yeah. that. Yeah. Well, the idea is that effectively there are multiple, there are multiple potential dimensions out there. Yes. Uh, but what the analysis can, can show us is how much a second or third dimension yes. ex- adds to our explanatory power of understanding where legislators are. Got it. And the, the cases in Texas or in the U.S. Congress today, it adds nothing. Uh, the one dimension explains pretty much everything. Understood. So... This method puts everybody on this one dimension, and it's it's completely neutral. That is, my code's very simple. Uh, it's it's the simple code. It takes in the votes. It puts out the votes. Uh, you can replicate it, and you should get pretty much the exact same result I have. That is, I have no say over which votes are included mm-hmm. other than following the standard that's used by everyone. And so one of the advantages of it is there's no criticism that someone you're cherry-picking or yeah. essentially trying to drive an agenda or picking bills to hurt a particular senator or state yeah. representative because you have no control over those. Nor could I even really tell you, it, you know, if you showed me one vote, if I vote on this you know, what, what effect it will have. Odds are one vote won't have much of an effect, yeah. but it's pretty tough to predict exactly the effect of it because it, everything interacts with everything else. Yes. 
And you know, it'll take, even on very high-end computers, to run this analysis overnight will take 10 to 12 hours uh, for it to actually run on a pretty sophisticated machine. That gives us the results that allows us to place these individuals from most liberal to most conservative. But there are no absolute values, as it's not saying that the most liberal person is necessarily the epitome of liberal and the most conservative person is the epitome of conservative. It's just within this given legislature, this is, these, this is the most liberal person, this is the most conservative person, and everybody else is in between. Also included in the analysis, and this I use a form of analysis referred to as Bayesian analysis, one advantage it has is it has these things that are called credible intervals, which is like in frequent statistics or confidence intervals, that essentially if the credible intervals overlap, you, even if one person is more conservative than another, you can't say they're significantly more. That is, it may just be due to chance. And so, and I, it, it and essentially takes in the uncertainty that exists in any statistical analysis. That, so there are no absolutes. And so I think what that helps doing is you can have a bunch of people really close together. Yes. But one is 20 points more conservative than the other. But if their credible intervals overlap, you have to say they're all about the same. That it. it's just what you can't say that one is notably more conservative than the other. Yep. That makes sense. So one of the things you noted in this last session was mm. that the 12 Democrats that took these suburban area seats that mm. had historically been Republican, right. um, one might have assumed that they would be voting within the more moderate block of the Democrat Party, right? right? Because mm. they represent suburban right of center leaning communities that just recently decided to go blue. And we don't even know yeah. if that's a permanent thing or, or a blip on the radar, but instead they all ended up in the most liberal third, right? Am I saying uh, that right? Or the half? Well, they're, they're the, the most liberal half of the democratic of the party. Democrat and then there's some of them that are in the most liberal 10. I mean, yes. that are among uh, like Aaron Zwiener, yes. uh, for instance, from Hayes County. So, yeah, so I think that's... What is your takeaway when it comes to that overall analysis? I think I have probably a different... Pers I have a perspective, but I'm just interested in kind of to say, what is, what's the academic uh, view of, of that trend? Well, I, I think one thing it shows is that they're being more principled than pragmatic. Mm -hmm. uh, so and more, more focused on their campaign and ideology than yeah. strategic. Yep. That would be one thing. That is that they weren't really thinking about how their votes might affect them with general election voters. They were more focused on trying to promote their Democratic agenda. Yeah. The second part is probably as freshmen, they may not be all that sophisticated in terms of understanding actually how they're voting in the legislature may actually influence how people view them overall. Yeah. And so, you know, there, and there's, there's sometimes there's some learning. That is, so there are some representatives who, after a session, may move towards the center after they realize that, well, this probably wasn't the best strategy because mm -hmm. it opens me up to some weaknesses. Uh, I mean, I think what they also may be relying on is that state rep isn't the most visible position and yep. that in the end, they may win or lose, not due to their voting record, but due to who, which Democrat challenges Donald Trump and how well Donald Trump does in Texas rather than how they voted in Texas legislature. I would counter that with that's probably the case if, you, if you're talking a four or five point advantage one way yep. or the other. But when you get down to one or two or three points, then it might actually matter if you effectively provided your opponent with ready-to-use ammunition yep. against you that you're not representative of your district. That is, you live in Hayes County, uh, you don't live in Travis County. And if you yep. live in Hayes County, maybe you should be voting a little more towards the center yep. than, say, you know, Gina Hinojosa. Gina Hinojosa, you know, is, represents the People's Republic of Travis County there in Austin. Yep. You know, she votes far left. Yeah, that's what, that's what her constituents expect. Yep. Uh, Hayes and Blanco County, I'm not so sure. No, and uh, I think you know it's interesting to note that um, I've always said that some of the some of the public servants that I admire the most from a principal perspective are Democrat congressmen that um, voted in favor of Obamacare, but mm -hmm. all lost in that sweeping election of 2010 because it really showed a mm -hmm. long term one belief in the principal policy that yeah. you say you espouse, right? Because I, I don't think Democrats are pushing um, socialized medicine to ruin our country. And some people might disagree with me, but my point is I think they are naive and I think they have a mi significant misunderstanding of economics and the consequences and, mm. and supply and demand and how that works mm. um, and an inability to look at the history of how these have been tried before and not worked. But that being said, mm. they actually do believe as naive as it is to me that enacting this policy will help these people, right? So they yeah. fundamentally do not actually 
not want people to have healthcare. They think I'm going to provide more people healthcare. And, um, my, uh, I took a worldview class in high school and my, the, the introduction of it would always, the guy would come on and he'd say, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? <laughs> and if you really believe that what you believe is really real, then how, how then should you act? Right. And so to me, those Democrat congressmen who knew, I mean, voting for Obamacare, right? Public polling was being done. You probably were looking at things very similar. This was not popular in a lot of congressional districts represented by Democrats who voted in favor of the policy because they needed to in order for it to pass. And they knew that that might have significant electoral consequences on them. And they still did. And, And some of the Democrats here in the legislature may have been doing a lot of those same things. You also made a good point that I think is, uh, I, I'm probably more on the side of saying that I think legislators think that their voters pay a lot more attention to their votes than they do. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> That's I, I'm just overall, right. You'll sit there and talk to some suburban legislator and about some policies yeah. going on and they'll go, well, I'm not sure how suburban women are going to look yeah. at this. And I'm going, I, I think when they go into cast their ballots in November of 2020, I don't know that they're going to be thinking about how you mm. voted on this yeah, education I, policy. I, yeah, I don't think on specific policies, I mean, that it, it would have to be a pretty remarkable policy for yes. it to really sway people. I think where, you, where you're at risk is just putting yourself in a category of yes. being so far yes. on the liberal end of the spectrum that the people may get a little uncomfortable. And that, that provides, it's yes. pretty ready-made ammunition for yes. your opponents to use by saying they're out of touch with Hayes County or yep. with Western Harris County or with Collin County. And do your point, people like the Ron Simmons district or the right. Michael Schofield district right. or the, um, you know, formerly Jason Isaac district right. are probably good examples of areas that mm. voted in favor of Greg Abbott. Yeah. And these people definitely do not consider themselves significantly further no. left on the political spectrum. And so yeah. putting yourself in there does make you somewhat vulnerable when it yeah. comes to the, the broader narrative. Right. I mean, yeah, there's some, of, I mean, some of the Dallas County Democrats are probably pretty safe and the Dallas County is yep. trending increasingly blue and yep. doesn't really matter that they're not going to get, get themselves booted out of office because mm-hmm. they've been on the liberal end. But some of the suburban areas, suburban Houston, Harris County, Collin County, Hayes yep. County, maybe parts of Williamson County, there you might have some trouble, but it all depends on do the Republicans draft a credible, talented candidate, and can that candidate campaign in an effective way? The argument I'd make in, in favor of, or just to make the point of how uneducated some voters are when it comes to down the ballot, right? Uh, I use Linda Coop and Matt Rinaldi as an example, yeah, right? Yeah. They're, they're right next door to each other yeah. in Dallas County, yeah. and they both had very far left Democrats yeah. running against them that had very va- radical views that did not align with kind of the suburban, middle yeah. class, upper middle class areas that they have. But they also were very different legislators, right? Yeah. On every spectrum. Yeah. Uh, Linda Coop was a um, yeah, older cent- woman. Yeah, and a centrist, more of a centrist. More of a centrist. Uh, Matt Rinaldi was considered the most conservative yeah. Republican in the legislature. Yeah. Linda Coop was backed by Parent Pack and teacher unions. Matt yeah. Rinaldi was a vocal supporter of public education reform and school choice. Yeah. Matt Rinaldi was very pro-life. Linda Coop had taken votes in favor of abortion. I mean, these are yeah. people that are very different when it comes to their ideological, ideological spectrums. Both very pleasant people to, to be around, but voters threw both of those people yeah. out of office, right? right? It wasn't like you saw these suburban voters going right. in to vote and going, well, we're not sure we're there. Right. And this other person in the middle, we're all going to support yeah. her significantly. Well, no, more. and particularly that was the case with the wave election that yep. we had. It should, candidate quality, at least theoretically, based yes. on what we know about politi- from political science and voting, should become a little more relevant now that straight ticket voting will no longer be an option yep. for people. And people will have to actually physically go down the ballot and vote race by race by race by race. That's not, that's that doesn't mean that partisan voting is going to disappear. Yep. It's just that the level of partisan voting should, it, well, it has to drop a little bit yep. just by the very fact that people have to go down there. So candidate quality and individual campaigns should matter at least a little more. That more. doesn't mean that they're going to be the deciding difference, yes. but we can say just based on this institutional change that yes. individual campaigns will matter more in 2020 than they did in 2018. I think that's a phenomenal point. When, when it comes to that, there are a lot of disagreements on whether the loss of straight ticket voting will significantly help or hurt Republicans or Democrats. Do you have a stronger opinion on that in general? I mean, I think you really have to think about sort of which Republicans you're talking about and which Democrats you're Mm -hmm. talking about. So, I mean, there's sort of 
one way to think about it is that in districts that in jurisdictions that could be legislative districts, it mm-hmm. could be counties like Harris County that are trending purple to blue. Yep. Uh, it benefits Republicans that if you kept straight ticket voting, it pretty much locked in that Democrats yep. would win the seats. Yep. By getting rid of straight ticket voting, you at least increase the probability a Republican yep. could win a countywide position in Harris County yep. or Bear County or yep. Dallas County, which ab- with in the presence of straight ticket voting, you probably couldn't win. That makes sense. The, the If you're a statewide Republican, though, you probably do reduce statewide chances of victory because up until now, it's been pretty futile for Democrats to run statewide, mm-hmm. Beto being ex- somewhat of an exception, yep. but even he's the exception that proves the rule. He's still mm-hmm. lost. Yep. And all of the fellow Repub- uh, his fellow Democrats lost as well. And Republicans yep. have won every election statewide since 1996. Yep. Um, so that's an area where it increases the likelihood that you have separation among the candidates Mm-hmm. And that if the Democrats nominate a strong candidate against a weak member of the Republican yep. herd, that candidate would have a greater chance of victory. So during this last campaign, it would have been examples like Ted Cruz or Ken Paxton. Ken, yeah, take, or, or Sid Miller. Yeah, Sid Miller the was three. the other one, right? So so those three who are the lower performing yeah. individuals, the question is how much did straight ticket voting help push them over the end? Right, and then, and, and particularly not with Cruz, but with, uh, Paxton. Ken, with Paxton and with Miller, they more likely than not would have had a more credible Democratic challenger yep. had that person known that they weren't competing against Greg Abbott in the entire straight Republican yep. straight ticket. So there, so that that's, I think, where Republicans are risking something is that they may start to lose some of those. And then in some of the redder counties, they may also start to lose some county-level positions just because just as straight ticket voting advantages Democrats in blue counties, mm-hmm. it advantages Republicans in red counties. Now, one final factor that I suspect could be part of the lieutenant governor's calculation. Let's be clear. The reason we got rid of straight ticket voting is because Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick decided we want to, he wanted to get rid of straight ticket voting. Yep. Strauss had always been in favor of getting rid of straight ticket voting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was Patrick who in 2017 decided we're going to get rid of it. Had Patrick said no, we still would have it. So I think probably what also might be part of the calculation is a belief among some Republicans, this is something that will remain to be proven, there's a belief that you're going to have greater Democratic roll-off than you are going to have Republican roll-off. And that is that a greater proportion of Republican voters will make it all the way down the ballot, particularly yep. in the big counties. In the smaller yep. counties, it doesn't. I mean, there yep. you don't get ballot fatigue because you only have 10 or 15, 20 spots on the ballot. Yep. But in Harris County, where you can have as many as 90, 95, Dallas County, 70, 75, there, I think there's a belief that if as you get further down the ballot, Democrats are going to give up a little more early mm-hmm. than Republicans, and therefore that you will get Republican advantages as you go down there. Now, that's a theory. Uh, we'll have to see if it actually occurs in practice. It's interesting, and, and uh, I guess one of my fears is I think that some Republicans might underestimate how many voters there are out there that are planning on going in and voting for Trump and could kind of care less about the rest of the Republicans yeah. down the rest of the ticket, right? I mean, yeah. that's just a no, reality. No, you, you a do. lot of those are clients of mine, right, that are down no, the you ticket. Do, so you we want to yeah. fight for that. But I don't know that, uh, I'm not sure that Republicans are feeling super loyal to every single Republican as much as Democrats are yeah. feeling super loyal to every single right, yeah. Democrat. You that's run a, the ri- yeah, that's you the do. You run the risk. I mean, you definitely run the risk. I think a lot of Republicans run the risk that, whereas previously people would have gone in and voted straight ticket Republican yep. and, and there and voted for Trump, now they may go vote for Donald Trump and then- Maybe they'll vote for John Cornyn, and then they get to the c- Congress, and they're like, okay, and then they get the railroad commissioner, like, I don't even know what a railroad commissioner is, yep. and then they leave. Yep, yep. And so at most, maybe they vote in the Senate and U.S. House race. Yep. It, it's going to be really interesting to do the hindsight 2020 yeah. perspective uh, on analyzing those elected results. Yeah, yeah I don't think, I, I'm not exa- entirely sure what sort of metrics went into the 2017's decision. I think probably only really Lieutenant Governor Patrick knows. Yeah, no, uh, I do. And I think Harris County probably uh, <laughs> had had a big uh, had a big thing to do with that. So um, when it comes to the analysis you've done on the Texas legislature, the legislative side, not the, not the campaign side, but the le- legislative side, um, I know you have told me before, too, that you've gone back and started to look at sessions for quite a while. Why don't you tell our listeners just about a little bit of that um, and the research that you've done and when some of that might be available for, for the public viewing? Well, I have a project. It's called the Texas Legislative History Project, which has gathered or is in the process of gathering roll call votes for every session 
in the Texas lower house and Senate from 1836 to the present. So from the days of the, of the Texas Republic, when they were having the sessions up in Washington on the Brazos to this past uh, May up in Austin, when they were having them, we, we have the roll call votes for the house. And I've collected about 85, 90% of them. Uh, this summer, I'm, my hope is that by August, I'll have finished up the house completely and have the Senate going back. The Senate's already, I have going back to 1945. And then, and then I'm going to start going back on the Senate. But my goal is by the end of the summer to have the entire house done. And then we'll start being able to do analysis of uh, different patterns of legislative voting, key issues in Texas. So well, I've done some work already on the days of the Texas Republic. And one, one of the things that's interesting there is that you have some sessions where there are multiple dimensions. Uh, and then there are others where there are relatively limited numbers. Uh, there's one, for instance, Sam Houston was a major factor in that he was the principal dividing dimension hmm. uh, during during his tenure as governor, as well as even when he was out of governor and Lamar was uh was governor, but then there was also a, a Western versus Eastern uh, split, primarily related to Comanches and sort of funding for military outposts. So it's, a, I mean, I still have to get into it, but I've, I've done the analysis and I've started to look at the data, but it's, it's a pretty fascinating way to look at Texas. And so mm. the final goal of the entire project is effectively using roll call votes as a lens to observe Texas history from 1836 to the present and how Texas has evolved politically in terms of cleavages, dimensions, partisanship, and representation during that entire period. One of the other things I know you've spent some time studying is the effect of international policies in South American countries and things on migration. Why don't you tell me some of, have you published some of that work and what are, what are some of your findings out there? Well, I've done some work primarily for the Inter-American Development Bank and the okay. U.S. government focusing on Guatemala, El Salvador, and to a lesser extent Honduras, where the focus has been on trying to understand how the political institutions there are structured and how you can reform or modify those institutions to have more effective and efficient public policy. So if you look at immigration today in the United States, the immigration crisis or the large number of uh, migrants coming from Latin America are primarily coming from Central America. Me migration from Mexico is pretty much net zero. That is, we have about as many people leaving, going back to Mexico as coming from Mexico. The big push are people from El Salvador, Honduras, and to a little lesser extent Guatemala. And they're primarily fleeing the conditions there, which are dreadful. These have always been poor countries. But over about the past 15 to 20 years, you've had drug gangs, the Maras, uh, MS-13, uh, Barrio 18 and their sort of iterations mm -hmm. that have made life pretty much impossible in uh, both of the countries. So if you aren't wealthy in Honduras or El Salvador, odds are you live in a neighborhood where the gangs effectively control things. You can't rely mm -hmm. on the police or the government to protect you. And... It can be very dangerous, especially if you have children, young daughters. If you have boys, they're going to be one to draw them in to work for the gangs and be part of the gangs. If you have girls to work for the gangs or for trafficking, exploitation, or to be the un unwilling girlfriend of a gang member. And so that causes many people to flee to the United States, even though they know they're going to have to traverse very dangerous terrain in Guatemala and then Mexico. They know when they get to the United States that they're going to have to cross the border. They're going to face detention. They weigh... Migrants are rational actors. They weigh the pros and the cons and the benefits in spite of the, that journey across Mexico, the perilous journey there, and being detained in the United States. The benefits outweigh uh, the costs, especially when you compare it to what they have in uh, El Salvador or Honduras, which is very little. Do you think that when you look at the immigration debate and discussion across our nation, um, where, where do you see it shifting? So, so what I mean by that is I feel like 10 years ago, the dividing line was not a group of people that fundamentally believed that we as Americans should make a decision to decide who comes in and out of our country and mm. who does not think that we as Americans have that right. right. right? right. So, but I, I, I sense that that is more the dividing line when it comes to immigration yeah. than not. And of course, Democrats don't want to take that position, but I just have yet to see recently any Democrat talk about us making a decision on who crosses and who doesn't, right? Because, um, so w w how do you see the immigration debate changing within our nation? Well, it's become a very polarizing issue and that's unfortunate because it's driven a wedge even further between the two sides and uh, essentially drowned the hopes of reaching 
some type of comprehensive reform, which like any reform uh, rep- requires compromise. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's, you know, as you know, Secretary Baker says, compromise is not a dirty word. Capitulation is, compromise is not. And so the difficulty is, I think on neither side, do you have Republicans willing to sacrifice enough or Democrats willing to sacrifice mm-hmm. enough. And as a result, we have the status quo, which is a broken immigration system. And I think on all sides have some good points. That is, on one hand, the United States can't accept everyone. That is, you can't essentially have an open door policy for everyone fleeing impoverished countries throughout the world simply because we don't have enough resources mm-hmm. to be able to handle that. Uh, and the other, on the other hand, we do have people inside the United States, approximately 10 to 11 million undocumented immigrants. Some of them are DACA, uh, sort of ch- childhood arrivals. Uh, though many of the, some of them ha- are, have temporary protected status, a smaller number. Uh, all of them are in some type of legal limbo. And the reality is many of them are functioning members of our society. And so some type of plan needs to be developed to effectively bring them out of the shadows and allow them to be functioning members. The, there, where the question comes in is, does that involve citizenship? Yes or no. Mm-hmm. And if it does involve citizenship, how long a period should be required? And at some point, I think, some Republicans are unrealistic. The idea of it, the idea of deporting everyone isn't realistic. It's not going to happen. Uh, you'd be deporting parents of American children, spouses, people who are vital to the economy, especially places like Texas. On the other hand, the Democratic option of giving everybody citizenship tomorrow uh, and having open borders along with that isn't a viable option either. And so we're it, it's really difficult. I think I remember back. I think Ted Kennedy, back when they almost came to a uh, essentially an agreement, mm-hmm. I can't remember when that, that back was. It was when Kennedy was involved. He made the point of if we don't make this get this, if we don't approve this reform, things are only going to get worse. And he was right. Uh, so I, I mean, it's a it's a very difficult issue, but it's one that we just aren't addressing. And if anything, the sides are becoming further apart. I think the Democrats, in some ways, have lost some opportunities during the Trump administration because I think President Trump's somewhat of a pragmatist on this issue. Mm -hmm. And I think since he really wanted the wall, uh, he would have been willing to give in, especially on DACA and the TPS, which are two, I mean, if you're thinking of the two groups that probably there's most agreement among Americans that they deserve citizenship or at least a pathway, it's DACA children who came here and have essentially lived their whole lives here uh, and TPS recipients who often who are who've been working and living in the, in the country and by definition to maintain their TPS status have been, you know, model citizens, uh, that they should you know, be given some, if not citizenship, some sort of long pathway to citizenship. Although most would be happy for just a, a nor- some type of re- permanent resident status, yep. uh, that Democrats could have negotiated that and gotten the wall. And by their intransigence, they lost that opportunity. Part of it's probably due to the fact that, uh, they didn't want to come to a, didn't want to cut a deal with Trump. Maybe they didn't trust him. And the other part is that it benefits Democrats to keep this issue alive because it's a losing issue for Republicans. The border security isn't a losing position for Republicans, but few Republicans are as adept as Rick Perry in walking that tightrope between being supportive of a strong board of strong border security and having and being somewhat hawkish on immigration without being seen as being anti-immigrant or anti-Latino. Mm-hmm. Rick Perry did a very good job throughout his administration of walking that line where he was seen as, you know, a strong advocate of border security, mm-hmm. but no one ever accused him of being anti-immigrant or anti-Latino, or at least no one credible did. The difficulty is most Republicans are not that adept. And so many that try to walk that line fall into statements or rhetoric or policies that are viewed by many Latinos as anti-Latino and anti-immigrant. And much of President Trump's policies have fallen into that camp as well. So for instance, the cancellation of TPS, while it's a small number of people, you're adversely affecting hundreds of thousands of Salvadorans and Guatemalans, I mean, Salvadorans and Hondurans who have American children, American spouses, friends, and families. So the multiplier effect of people who have a negative view of President Trump because of that is larger. Now, you know, I don't, I wouldn't want to go to the Democratic edge of the spectrum and saying that that Donald Trump is therefore unpopular among all Latinos. Data show he is not. That yeah. is, that his floor among Latinos is somewhere around 30, 35 percent. Mm-hmm. But at the margins, it does hurt Republicans in some districts. Um, do you think that the 
absence of handling this issue from a legislative perspective is also fueling the tensions. What I mean by that is, you know, DACA was not passed through Congress, right? right. So, so basically you take action on an issue not based on changing policy the way co- compromise is required through the legislative right. pro- process. Compromise is not required because if you're mm-hmm. getting what you want by people crossing the border and not getting caught. I mean, we have, so so my point being, you have people crossing the border who are currently not being apprehended. We already know that. Law enforcement yeah. says, hey, we're getting 100,000 people, but for every 100,000 we get, there's another 100,000, 150,000 that are coming by that we're never catching, and they're just in our country. Yeah. The reality of the, the fact that if we're not enforcing the laws as they exist, does that also remove the need to find a compromising policy that takes in different sides into consideration, right? Well, if you're allowed to just pass your executive order, give people citizenship, yeah. which another president can then just take away. Yeah. And then if your position is, we're not going to enforce the laws that are on the books, meaning these people are coming in illegally, that is illegal. Now we can debate that. Yeah. If you think it should be legal for those people to cross, let's pass a law that says mm. that. Well, we don't have the votes in the Senate. Well, that's maybe why that rule exists. Mm. So that's why mm. compromise has to be found. And now we, yeah. but when these issue continues to be, to be allowed to persist mm-hmm. absence a requirement to even come to the table. Does that also make it very difficult well, from a policy perspective? I think it does in terms of the pres- the essentially the ability of presidents to do something by executive order or decree uh, allows sort of is like a pressure it's like a pressure valve. It's like an escape valve that releases some of the pressure. So the pres- the pressure on President Obama to negotiate related to immigration was reduced when he could do DACA on mm-hmm. his own. The pressure of Donald Trump and Republicans to negotiate is released when they can enforce immigration law a little stronger. Yeah. They can eliminate TPS. Uh, they can change rules regarding asylum and detention. So, so I think, yeah, that is the extent to which the executives have these sort of ad hoc ways that they can at least release some of the pressure, that that reduces pressure on Congress to actually come to an agreement. Because in the end, during the Obama era, Democrats said, well, things aren't that bad with DACA, and we, maybe we'll get DAPA through, and we have mm-hmm. TPS that we can extend forever. Then they lose, and, and Republicans might have been more willing to negotiate. But now Republicans are like, well, we're not going to negotiate if you're not going to come to the table, because we can do some of these things on our own. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a very difficult issue. And the sad part is, you know, you have millions of lives that are adversely affected. Uh, but at the same time, you can't take everybody. I mean, that is, I mean, that's one thing that is really, I mean, if the United States can't absorb that many people, and then also the United States, you know, has to look at immigration from a humanitarian perspective, but also from a strategic perspective. That is, you also should be looking at immigration in terms of improving the United States. So who can add the most to our brain power? So are you bringing in doctors, scientists? So you have companies right now that Mm -hmm. can't get enough visas for uh, computer science engineers, for software engineers, for people working on nanoparticles, uh, because there's a limit. Uh, you know, those are the people that you need for the country to grow. So you have to find a balance between, and that's where Democrats, for instance, have been unwilling to negotiate ending chain migration, mm-hmm. which essentially allows people from very extended families to sponsor people, which, you know, is sort of some some family member got here for whatever reason, and therefore they have an advantage over somebody who might be able to bring much more to the table in terms of medicine mm-hmm. or science or elsewhere. So mm-hmm. I think finding a proper balance, but that requires negotiation. And when I look at Washington today, there's nothing that leads me to believe that we're going to have the conditions for that type of negotiation anytime in the near future. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to uh, this legislative session, how much do you think the 2018 elections affected the issues that were discussed, debated, and the issues that weren't discussed and debated? Well, I think uh, the 2018 election results, Beto O'Rourke's success, but also mm-hmm. the Republican loss of 12 Texas House seats, two Texas Senate seats, and two U.S. House seats, that was an alarm bell that I think most Republicans heard. And the belief was that 
we probably went too far in 2017. We, we damaged our brand. And while we can't control everything, we can't control Donald Trump in the White House, we can't control who the Democratic nominee is, to the extent to which we can control things on the ground, we can control the image of the Republican Party by what type of 2019 legislative session we have. And so the focus was away from issues that were more priority for the Republican base and more focus on issues that are a priority for general election voters. So with particular the issue of property tax relief, and public education. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, especially Republicans saw that one of the reasons, or at least the belief is one of the reasons why they lost in Williamson County and Hayes County and Collin County and parts of Harris County, seats that used to be Republican, was Mm -hmm. dissatisfaction by parents with the public education system, people who in the past had voted Republican. So that was, I think, one thing. thing. Also, I think Governor Patrick... uh, And and, uh, let me come in here and then I'll let you go on, Patrick. I mean, the interesting thing is that most parents who are moving into those suburb areas are moving there because of the public school right. system, right? So I think yeah. that's also an interesting, uh, yeah. just from an electoral perspective, right, right? Like, I'm not talking about the policy. I'm talking about electoral politics here. You know, we talk a lot about uh, education situations yeah. and you go, actually, the people who are moving there are moving there for the school right. system. So, I mean, they don't, they're not saying with the purchase of their home and saying, I'm coming here because of the school system, necessarily saying, this school finance system is broken. I think that uh, yeah. I'll do a lot of those people do hate Robin Hood because it ends up yeah. jacking up their property taxes and they're paying those right. statewide. Yeah, and it's effectively I don't I don't think they knew exactly why they were upset with the public education yes. system, but they moved from Travis County to Leander from Travis ISD yes. to Leander ISD, and they yes. said that's because Leander ISD is great. And they get there and Leander ISD has some problems. They're like, yep. what's going on here? This is why yes. I moved. This is why I drive forty minutes a day or whatever, and. They blame the Republican Party. And so I think one of the real exam- one of the real benefits that the Republicans can come out of this session with is being able to say, we said we recognized, we heard you that there were, you said there was a problem with public education. We passed this very substantial reform uh, and provided enhanced funding for public education as well as are going to improve how it functions. And in addition to that, one of the things you're also complaining about is your property taxes, and we're going to provide property tax relief. So for so the message and sort of that you get from Austin this session are Republicans working on providing more finance for public education mm-hmm. and providing property tax relief, mm-hmm. as opposed to you go back to 2017, and that was overshadowed by a bathroom bill. And so I think for many uh, general election voters, that was a positive thing. I think we also saw a different Lieutenant Governor Patrick this session. Mm -hmm. 2017, Dan Patrick ran the Senate with an iron hand. Pretty much everyone fell in line. And to the extent to which Kel Seliger didn't say yes, sir, one or two times, he had a primary challenge. Uh, Craig Estes was very loyal during 2017, but the original sin of 2015 was never forgiven. So he had a primary challenge. Uh, All of the rest of the the senators tended to follow Patrick's lead and didn't, you know, only sort of, uh, I guess, rebelled against him on very isolated Mm -hmm. incidents. You know, fast forward to 2019, we saw Dan Patrick only win by 5% against no name Mike Collier. Yep. So he didn't do very well electorally, whereas Greg Abbott was up in the low double digits and Glenn Hager and George P. Bush, who also faced sort of unknown rivals, had double the votes of Dan Patrick. So that was, I think, a rebuke by at least there are at least some voters out there. They yep. could be five percent of the electorate for you know, whatever mm-hmm. that voted for Greg Abbott, didn't vote for Dan Patrick, yep. voted for Glenn Hager, didn't vote for Dan Patrick. The other thing was Patrick lost two of his senators. He lost mm-hmm. Connie Burton. and He lost Don Huffines. Yep. That doesn't look good. And had it not been for the Bear County Democratic parties, either yep. incompetence or selfishness, yep. uh, he would have been down to 18 senators mm-hmm. uh, without Pete Flores. So that was a. So I think that also hit Patrick in the sense that the senators were less willing this session to essentially follow Patrick's lead. The other difficulty Patrick had was it was very easy to work against Joe Strauss because in the end, Joe Strauss could never get across, could never, I guess, recover in the eyes of many Republicans from the original sin of uh, 2009, when he and 10 other colleagues, the Gang of Eleven, the Polo Road Gang, joined with Democrats to oust Tom Craddock, the Republican speaker. And then, at least for his first few sessions, essentially gave Democrats veto power of a lot of different legislation. Mm -hmm. So it was, Patrick knew that, you know, Abbott, Greg Abbott always had to be at least a little, could never get too close to Strauss because that would essentially undermine him in the eyes of many uh, Republican activists. Mm -hmm. The one thing that the election did in 2018 was it scared a lot of Republican legislators. Uh, a lot of members of the Texas House, uh, people like Jonathan Stickland, Bill Zedler, uh, who were more conservative, but 
know, they won by less than 5% of the vote. So there are a lot of Republican legislators who <clears throat> also wanted somebody in office who was going to sort of look out for the legislature and essentially push through parties that would hurt, help, that would help the Republican brand not hurt it. And Bonin came in and sort of, and he very, I think, astutely, he stayed out of the race saying, no, I don't want to do it. No, no, I never want the job. You know, I, I love I love things here down in Angleton. I never want to, don't want to go to Austin too much other than, you know, as a regular rank and file member. But then he came out as sort of the savior. That is, none of the others had the sort of the support he had. And he was able to be elected speaker with universal unanimous consent among the Republicans. And so he came in in a much stronger uh, position and was thus, therefore, willing to essentially assert himself with that more pragmatic mission. And that also, I think, uh, helped mellow Dan Patrick out a little bit on policy, and then also was much more in line with what Greg Abbott would have, I think, liked in 2017. I'm of the view that Greg Abbott got pulled to the right by um, Dan Patrick in 2017 more than he was probably comfortable with. Uh, and in 2019, that wasn't the case. We had Dennis Bonin working very effectively. So I think I think Dennis Bonin was probably one of the biggest uh, factors that explains the shift in the 2019 session. That and Beto O'Rourke, who put, helped put the fear of God into the rest of the Texas Republican Party. Do you think there is, that Republicans are in any way in danger of deflating their Republican uh, energy as a result of the session? And so, you know, if you're a typical red-blooded, uh, you know, gun-toting, church-attending Republican, and every time you turn your phone on, you're seeing a neighboring state pass some strong pro-life law or a neighboring state pass a strong Second Amendment mm. law or mm. some other issue that you are mm. really motivated by, and mm. then you turn around and Texas has mm. not done any of those things, does that make you less likely as a Republican to vote Republican all the way down the ballot if these people aren't actually delivering the policy results that you thought Texas would naturally deliver? Uh, I think there are some people who may think that way, uh, but I think you have to balance that against people you lose by pushing policies that are unpopular and help Democrats. So abortion is a really good example. So uh, the Born Alive bill was perfect legislation this session because that effectively says, you know, if, if a baby is born, uh, can't murder it. Uh, so, but in which, is, you know, in some ways it's symbolic, but it also puts Democrats in the corner because the ardent pro, pro-choice mm-hmm. advocates are going to still be against that because mm-hmm. they don't like the symbolism of it. Yep. But that's an issue upon which you're in the, you're in the majority in Texas. Yep. Now, if you start moving to heartbeat bills, that's where you start getting into grayer areas with, with the electorate. Now, that doesn't mean that it's, it, it hurts you, but it may, depending on how far you push, you may start to lose votes. And in the end, you know that that legislation isn't going to be held, well, at least under the current court, is not going to be held to be constitutional anyway. And even if it were to pass, there are other, there's other pieces of legislation in the line before it. So I think that was a smart decision by Texas Republicans not to push symbolic legislation that from a policy perspective would not be implemented anytime soon. And if in the event the Supreme Court does decide and say supports a heartbeat bill, then that will be at the next session. They can pass the legislation that session. I think the uh, the the real question that's up there is when it comes to these liberal Democrats, right, who get elected and are then within the liberal section of their party because they're truthfully trying to push the policy that they've told everybody they believed in from the beginning, whether or not that does a better job motivating the people that come out and actually loyally vote all the way down the ballot or not. Right. And so how much, how much are we deciding between um, the people that make their voting decisions within those last couple of weeks and how much are we deterring our base that we're always trying to get out and vote? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's the constant balance and you have to, you know, that's, I think every, that's going to differ by state, by issue, by district, but yeah, it's always a balance that one part of campaigns as you know, better than I do is getting your base out to vote. And the other is convincing people to vote for you. And it's usually a combination of the two. Well, uh, and also I guess another point is, and this is, I think something we saw this past election, not giving the other side something to mobilize around to turn out to vote against you. And I think that's one of the the things about with Donald Trump was 
Trump provided Democrats with something to turn out to vote against. Yep. That is, and and the the sort of the genius of Beto was also giving them something positive to vote for. Yes. So you can buy you. And it, was so a, Democrat, it was a push and a pull. Yeah. So you had this perfect storm in Texas where you had Democrat. You had one group of Democrats turning out to vote against Donald Trump, yep. and another turning out to vote positively for Beto and his change. Yep. Now the problem for Beto, I believe, is now that he's running for president, yep. that. Post that postpartisan, uh, I can be everything to everyone. Yeah. Beto no longer exists. Yeah. That is the Beto that is right now running for president is a far is you know a pretty strong progressive who's renouncing all of the centrist positions that he took in the past mm-hmm. on on essentially support for law enforcement, on support for oil drilling, on means testing for welfare. He's renouncing all of those, and the difficulty runs into is that. His past isn't all that progressive, and he's competing against a bunch of people for that same progressive vote who have very good, crystal clear uh, progressive track records like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. The truth is, I mean, if you were a leftist progressive in Texas and Beto was running against Ted, you were voting for Beto, right? I mean, you were going, well, what's your position on fossil fuels? And the thing was, Beto, but even because the Cruz campaign did not attack him from the left— Beto was able to be everything to every Democrat. Mm-hmm. So I would talk to some Democrats who thought he was a Democratic socialist or yep. they, they thought he was a true progressive because Cruz never attacked him from the left. He never mm-hmm. said, because I mean, it, it, one, it didn't appeal to him. And also I don't think Cruz ran a very good campaign. And yep. you know, it was in the end, they started to ramp it up. But yep. I think one of the biggest errors of the Cruz campaign was made was letting Beto be everything to everyone up until at least October or September. Yes. Uh, yeah. where he, so they could have at least, I mean, and you actually saw the club for growth of all groups recently when his presidential run hit him for not being on the left. Yeah. You know, but I mean, that, but that was the type of ad that Cruz needed to get out there, not from Cruz, cause it would seem some of weird and yep. duplicitous, but to get it out among sort of targeting online, yep. targeting left-wing groups yep. via Facebook to show he isn't really this progressive. You yep. think he is like, I remember giving talks to large numbers of people, very politically active people. And I remember one question I had from someone was saying, you know, he's raising all this money. Do you think uh, that he's going to like try to use this like to, you know, for fund his personal expenses in the future? And I'm like, and my response was, well, given that he's the son-in-law of Bill Sanders, who's worth somewhere between $750 million and a billion dollars, I don't think he's going to need to worry about, you know, ha- yeah. you know, essentially a living. And what was clear from the audience, and this is like 200, 300 people who are very politically savvy, yeah. was they were they had, they had, they had no, no idea. idea. They had no idea that yep. Beto is a member of the 1% of the 1%. So um, last thing, not super political. So I, uh, one of my goals and dreams like long term mm-hmm. um, is like 10, 15 years from now, I would love to be an adjunct professor. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm confessing this yeah. to you and anybody mm-hmm. else listening to this conversation. So it's one of my yeah. kind of like long term mm-hmm. goals. So as a professor, now again, I don't want to go mm-hmm. the academia route and yeah. get a PhD and do all that stuff. I'll get a master's and mm-hmm. um, teach, but I, I love teaching. I love instructing. I love, you know, discipling and guiding and doing all sorts of things like that. So um, what are advice, what is any advice you'd have from just a teaching perspective from your, uh, you know, involvement? Um, you know, and career in that area? I think with teaching, I mean, uh, one of the interesting parts is what I try to do is actually link the academic work with real world politics and policy. Mm -hmm. I think students find that to be the most interesting when you can link what they're studying with what they're living in the real world Mm -hmm. and how it actually matters for their lives and everyone else's lives. And so the more you can link what you're studying to the world, it's, it's, I think, more effective in terms of teaching, but also the students get more out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a good example would be the required Texas politics course that uh, if you're a state school mm-hmm. in Texas, you have to take. That's a course that can be very rich if taught the right way. I have a textbook, Texas Politics Today, where mm-hmm. we really try to link up sort of the the knowledge that, is that you have to know about campaign finance and how the legislature mm-hmm. works. And you actually have a chapter, yes. you, have, you have an essay in, yes. in one of our chapters on campaigns, uh, how all that works, but then linking it up to modern day events so that people, that students can understand, okay, this is how, why, how the Texas legislature operates affects my life. This yep. is how, how the county, who the county judge is and what the impact the county judge has on policy. Mm-hmm. Those types of things, the more that you can link them to the day to day life of people, I think the more rewarding the course is. Yep. 
Well, Mark, I really do appreciate your willingness to sit down with me and have this conversation. I'm sorry about our, our first dry run of eight minutes, no. and there were some gold nuggets that you dropped that our listeners will never get to hear. They were for my ears only at this point, but thank you so much for sitting down, talking, having this discussion, and um, thank you so much for, yeah, just giving us the time. No, I really enjoyed it. Great. Hey, thank you. God bless. Thank you guys for uh, sticking through that conversation. I really do appreciate Mark's willingness to come on and have a conversation with us and talk about his take on where everything goes um, and how everything's going. Uh, At the end of the day, guys, um, one of the things that I think at least came out a little bit in Mark and I's conversation is that I I do think there is a legitimate um, identity crisis that is going on within conservative circles, but also within the Republican Party of Texas. And um, Republicans have to decide now now uh, what their message is going to be and uh, what type of vision they want to lead with, what type of policies they want to implement, how they want to make people's lives better. And um, I think that even in the discussion with Mark, him giving his take on this last session and why Republicans did what they did is just more evidence of the fact um, that Republicans aren't really Sure. In fact, sometimes there seems to be an approach to just kind of not do anything controversial because at least that might make us more likely to maintain our power. And I think that if we are able to keep this state red in 2020, which we should be able to do, it will be because there are a lot of Texans who do not want Democrats to take over the nation and are going to come out and vote for Donald Trump to be president. Um, Because anybody who's watched the Democrat debates is scared enough to come out and vote for a Republican presidency to keep them from doing that. And because Donald Trump has actually fulfilled many of his campaign promises. And so um, I think Republicans on a state level have an opportunity to follow that lead and try to implement even more of the promises that we've made to the people of Texas. Thank you so much for engaging in the show, sending us your feedback. If you have not reviewed it yet, please consider doing so on uh, Spotify or Apple podcasts or YouTube. Uh, Subscribe on any of those platforms and continue to give us feedback. We really appreciate all the encouragement that we're getting from so many of our listeners. Thank you so much. Have a great day. God bless. Thank you for listening to The Luke Messia Show. If you value this content and want our message to spread, please consider three of the following steps. One, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on and leave us a review. Two, visit lukemessias.com and sign up for our email alerts. And three, follow Raz and I on Twitter and visit my Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Luke Messias Texas. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Luke Macias, Texas. Thank you so much and God bless.